Welcome to Sex and Politics. Housing is one of my obsessions. If you follow me on Twitter, you've probably been subjected to some of my retweets of urbanists and Yimby, yes, in my backyard, advocates who push for building more housing, for doing something about our housing crisis. And because housing, you know, along with fucking and sucking and kinks and non-monogamy and pegging and everything else fascinates me, I've long wanted to have a conversation with Scott Weiner. He's a former member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. He currently serves in the California State Senate where he's in his second term. And he has pushed through the California State Senate and House and marshaled onto the governor's desk some of the most progressive legislation in the country addressing the housing shortage by doing what to me seems like the obvious thing to do, increase the housing supply. Scott agreed to come on Sex and Politics with me, talk about housing, but also to take a listener sex question. That's at the end of our conversation. Scott's a fascinating guy, a really effective politician, and someone who, although he says he has no interest at this time, I predict will one day run for governor of California and perhaps be California's first gay governor. Here's my conversation for Sex and Politics with Scott Wiener. Scott Wiener, thank you so much for getting on the phone with me. Thanks for having me. So you're a former member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, now a member of the California State Senate. But what I really wanted to talk with you most about are your heroic efforts to extend opening hours for bars in California, 4 a.m. drinking times, closing times instead of 2 a.m. But you've been frustrated in that. Yeah, this has been, um, at this point, it's like a 20-year fight. My, the guy, my predecessor in the State Senate, Mark Leno, um, also, uh, you know, real champion for nightlife. He, he tried it for a number of years. And then when I came into the Senate in 2016, I took it over and we actually started getting bipartisan support in the legislature and it was going really well. And we, and we actually got it onto the governor's desk. It was Jerry Brown at the time and he vetoed it, which was just devastating after all of those years of work. So we've taken a little bit of a break on it, but we're, we're going to be back at it. It's just ridiculous that in California, every bar and, and nightclub has to stop serving liquor at 2 a.m., whether you're in a small town or in downtown L.A. or downtown San Francisco. And we want to give cities more flexibility to decide what their nightlife is. You're so delightfully earnest because that's not what I wanted to talk with you about at all. <laughs> I wanted to talk. I'm just joking. Um, but I, but I liked to, is there any chance you're going to try again with Gavin Newsom? Any chance of getting that back onto the governor's desk? We're going to, I think we're going to try. I don't know if it'll be this year or maybe next year. Uh, but what we're going to try, I mean, we want people to have fun. And you could see why that might appeal to some Republicans, the libertarian ones, let my people drink when they want to fucking drink and not have the state telling bars when they have to close. Well, and not and and letting cities decide, right? It's like instead of the the big state coming in. So yeah, so there are a bunch of Republicans who really like it. Republican yeah, Party too. Yeah, as Madison Cawthorn keeps proving to us again <laughs> and again. Speaking of letting cities decide, this is what I really wanted to talk with you about, which is housing. I'm sort of a clo- not really a closet, just it's not relevant to what I mostly do. But I'm an urbanist, and I am constantly and have been for decades flabbergasted by cities forbidding people from building cities in their cities. Cities closing the door, like San Francisco has, like Seattle has, to more housing. And then everybody in that city is scratching their ass and wondering why this thing that's so scarce, housing, is so expensive, is so 
idea. Letting cities decide when it comes to housing has been a disaster, hasn't it? It has not worked. And, uh, you know, and I, I say this as a former local elected official, there are a lot of things that should be decided at the local level, but we've let cities have almost complete latitude for forever. Maybe it worked a hundred years ago, maybe not, but it's certainly not working now. And, you know, if you, if you look at another important issue like public education, can you imagine if we proposed letting local school districts decide what subjects to teach, whether to teach math, whether to have credentialed teachers, whether to teach 10 days a year or 100 days a year. We would never do that. We set standards because we want every kid educated. But for housing, it's been the Wild West, and we let cities do what they want. It's a race to the bottom. And cities, you know, or people, uh, or at least the loudest voices, because most people want more housing, but the loudest, most obnoxious voices are yell and scream that they don't want any change. And, and we're screwing over young people. We're screwing over young families. We're pushing people into poverty. Uh, and we're pushing people into two-hour commutes. It's absurd. And these are the same cities that then turn around and expect the state or the federal government to finance roads, public transportation, that then brings people somewhere, you know, that moves people on those two-hour commutes or brings them somewhere that they, then they can't get housing. We build at the, you know, cost of billions and billions of dollars public transportation systems that then can't be utilized by the most number of people because unlike big cities in Europe and like Vienna uh, and other places that are lovely, you can't build dense housing by transit nodes in Seattle. We have giant parking lots by these transit stations. It costs us billions of dollars to build on our new light rail system. Yeah, we have that in the Bay Area. We have BART stations and also Muni stations in San Francisco that are surrounded only by single family homes. And we're trying to change that. Uh, and, and I'm of the view we should not be making major transit investments unless in particular areas, unless they're accompanied by a big upzoning. Because uh, the, the idea that you build a train station and no one can actually walk to it, it, it defeats the purpose. I don't understand why people move to a city like San Francisco or Seattle or Chicago or New York and then want it to stop growing when it's usually the dynamism of a city and its growth of that city in the past, it made it possible for you to buy the place that you live in in that city. What is wrong with people? <laughs> I mean, uh, I, we're just going to be in violent yeah. agreement for this, the 20 minutes we have to talk. What is wrong with people? Well, I think there's some basic human psychology that when we move to a city, whether it's me moving to San Francisco or someone moving to Chicago or wherever else you move into a city, and then that's the snapshot that I moved here because this is how the city is right now, and I love it that way, and I want it to stay that way forever. And anything that changes it is gonna is gonna fuck with my perception of what the city was the moment I were I moved there and fell in love with it. And so people get very upset, and and we you know we have situations in San Francisco where we have people people who moved into the mission in the 1980s and 1990s and, and bought up old homes and rehabbed them. Uh, and they were basically, you know, engaging in the process of gentrification. First wave gentrifiers. Yeah. And now 20, 30 years later, they're complaining about new development causing gentrification when they were the gentrifiers 20, 30 years ago. And so people really, it's a human thing. Like what we moved here, this is what I fell in love with in the city. And I wanted to stay that way forever. And we know that 
Nothing stays that way forever. And as soon as a city stops changing and stops evolving and stops allowing for new ideas, that city starts to die. And impoverished people, like you said earlier, the the cities, these intellectual hubs, the uh, brains economy, these are where the new jobs are being created. And people can't get in there to and find housing that's affordable that they can live in to take those jobs. And I don't understand the cowardice of most elected officials in the face of this, that that people can't, people who are elected to run cities can't make arguments in favor of building cities where cities already are. It's changing. And I will say, you know, as a, as a gay man who came to San Francisco 25 years ago, you know, I know a lot of LGBTQ people who came to San Francisco in the sixties and seventies and eighties, and they came here because they, they wanted to have a community and they were able to find housing. Uh, And it's deeply concerning that now in 2022, Uh, People find a way to come to our cities, but it's gotten harder and harder for these young people. We're trying to do some work to allow trans kids and their families who need to leave places like Texas or Alabama because those idiots are trying to take, you know, try to take the kids away from the parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want them to come to California, but we need to have housing that they can afford. I will say that there are more and more local elected officials who are showing a lot of courage in supporting housing. We've, we've had some city councils in the Bay Area that have flipped to a pro-housing majority uh, because most people, when you do the polling, it's very strong. They want more housing and they're okay with you know multi-unit or apartment buildings in their neighborhood. Uh, and we, we're trying to empower those people to speak up. A lot of them are working multiple jobs, trying to just get their kids' homework done. Uh, and they can't come to a planning commission meeting for six hours. But we have the the YIMBY movement, the Yes in My Backyard movement, uh, which are mostly young people, but also older people who have completely changed politics. And in San Francisco, we just had uh, a, a special election for a vacancy in the state assembly. Uh, and the, the two candidates were very, very different on housing. And the pro-housing candidate won in a landslide with 63% of the vote, and it was all about housing. And you've had some success at the state level, passing mm-hmm. laws that are going to cram housing down the throats of cities that are resisting building cities where cities already are. Yeah, we've, uh, in the last six, seven years, the legislature um, has passed some really strong laws, and I've, I've authored some of them, I have some great colleagues who have who've shown a lot of leadership um, to make it faster to approve housing, to reduce city's ability to obstruct housing, to say that if you zone for a 20-unit project, 20-unit apartment building, you have to let them build 20 units and you can't take five years to approve it. Um, we're, we're trying to make sure people can build, you know, two, three, four-unit uh, small apartment buildings and not just single-family homes, uh, making a lot of changes. And it's caused a lot of tension within the state. And we're seeing that now, like the, the, the housing goals that we set for cities every eight years, which used to be a dead letter, they're now very meaningful. If you don't meet them, you lose some of your local land use control. And those numbers, because of legislation we passed, have tripled for wow. the next cycle. And, and so it, it's terrific and it's causing huge tension, but it's really healthy tension. It's tension we have to go through to get to a better place. And I think we're going to get there. Can we talk quickly about single family zoning? 
which YIMBYs and pro-housing advocates and urbanists are trying to reframe, just like we called it gay marriage and then we shifted to marriage equality, trying to reframe as exclusionary housing instead of single-family zoning or exclusionary zoning. What was the reason that so much of our these cities on the West Coast wound up with so much single-family zoning and why is it problematic? To keep black people and poor people out of communities. And it's, it's, it's one of those ugly episodes in, in U.S. history. It used to be that you could build apartments pretty much anywhere. Um, and then, and, uh, and it was like 1915 or 17, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that you can't do racial zoning because cities would literally have zoning that said black people can't live in this part of the city. The U.S. Supreme Court struck it down. Immediately after that, uh, the city of Berkeley, Progressive Berkeley, created single-family zoning to say the only thing you can build here is a single-family uh, home. Can't build, we're going to ban apartment buildings. Uh, and that was designed and created uh, as a proxy for racial zoning to say if you can't afford some single-family home, you can't live here. So that kept a lot of people of color uh, and a lot of low-income people out of communities. And it spread all over many parts of the country, but especially the West Coast, to the point where in California, about 70% of the residentially zoned land is zoned only for single-family homes. And it's not about being against single-family homes. I grew up in a single-family home. They're terrific. Uh, But it's whether we should say that that's the only kind of housing we should have. Uh, And, you know, I I can't afford a single-family home in San Francisco, and and a lot of people can't. And so we're trying to say, hey, single-family homes are great, but so are apartment buildings, and the two can peacefully coexist. Well, full disclosure, I feel like I have to put this out there. I live in a single family home in Seattle, but if I were trying to buy it now, I could not afford it. But I was one of those people who's lucky enough to buy a house or Terry and I bought our first condo and then our first house after flipping that condo, you know, 27 years ago, 26 years ago, which is why we have the house we have now. 70 plus percent of Seattle is zoned for single family housing for the same racist exclusionary reasons. It's San Francisco and Berkeley are. And I walk around my neighborhood, Capitol Hill, which is the closest city to closest neighborhood, inner city neighborhood to downtown. And it's like Mayberry. It's all single family houses on large lots with lots of yard space. And it blows my mind that I live a 20 minute walk from downtown Seattle in essentially what looks like a suburb. And it's a lovely neighborhood. It kind of reminds me of the neighborhood I grew up in in Chicago except, you know, I grew up in a single family house in Chicago at either end of the block. There's single family homes kind of in the middle of the block, but at either end, six, eight story apartment buildings with dozens. And in some case, a hundred or more units that kind of anchored the block and just allowing for those and corner stores would make so much more of Seattle available to so many more people who would like to live in Seattle, who are being priced out of Seattle right now. And yet, if you propose that, my neighbors, not me, I'm an advocate for tearing my house down and replacing it with eight-story apartment blocks going in every direction, my neighbors would riot. And the city would never do it because my neighbors are wealthy and they vote. Yeah. And it's really hard. And so I live in the Castro and we actually did rezone the Castro and surrounding areas for a lot more density. And so we're seeing more six, eight story apartment buildings going up. Uh, and there's an effort now in San Francisco to rezone the entire city 
for fourplex for small four unit up to four unit apartment buildings. Um, and then on corner lots, it would be six units. So it's not like the mega density, but it would be the entire city. You could do up to four or even six units. And even that is a game changer. And um, it's, it can be done in a way for people who are, who are concerned, no, I don't want, you know, some mega building on my block. Okay, fine. Let's, let's just let someone put four units, four townhomes or four condos or four apartments or maybe six. And it's, it's, we call it gentle density. It's not a dramatic change, but it allows more families and more people to live in the community and, and patronize the small businesses uh, and ride transit and do all of the things that we love cities for. I was just in Berlin and I walk around Berlin, I walk around Vienna, and what I see in front of me is kind of the worst case scenario that gets spun out by people who oppose density. These canyons of apartment buildings that are all six, seven, eight stories tall that go on for miles and miles. And it's lovely. It is lovely. And it's expensive uh, also to, to live in a lot of these places in Berlin because they're in high demand. So it's not like you build these eight-story buildings and everybody loathes them or that these neighborhoods are unlovely. They're walkable, they're dense, they're livable. And it's just, in the same way I would like to take every American to Europe and break their legs so they can see what socialized medicine is actually like as opposed to the fear-mongering about it, I would okay. like to take every American who opposes density and housing to Berlin for a month to live in one of these buildings to see what that kind of urban density is like. It's not dehumanizing. It doesn't plot out the sun. It actually makes a place vibrant and livable Paris and walkable. And, and Paris and Vienna. Yeah. There's no single-family zoned areas in Vienna. It is all apartment blocks, and it also has more green space than any city, I think, in the world, I read, because of the public parks, avenues, and courtyards behind these dense, tall apartment buildings. Well, and when you have more density, it opens up more space elsewhere open space because it's one of the problems that we have when places like san francisco or seattle or berkeley aren't building enough housing in these urban cores it means that the housing sprawls out and it destroys farmland and open space in, Cal in california it means building in wildfire zones so you're you're it means increased carbon emissions it's environmentally unsustainable and that's why it's really um hypocritical and fortunately more and more environmental groups are fervently in favor of, of urban density because they know that means you're using less water, you, you're using less energy, you're, you're driving less. It's just better for the planet. Paul Krugman wrote in a column a few years ago that the most efficient means of public transportation and the greenest is the elevator. It's true. And walking. And walking. Uh, and, and, you know, that's the, the other. Not everyone can walk, but for the people who who are able to walk and get around that way. I love the neighborhood I live in. I'm very lucky. I can walk most places. I, I barely have to drive. Um, but we structure, we structure our cities in some ways that where we force people uh, to drive. I love my neighborhood because I can walk too. I will go. I, I don't know how to drive. I grew up in Chicago. I never had to learn how to drive because there was the L and it went everywhere you needed to go, including when I was 13 years old, it opened up to O'Hare airport, which made the whole world a place you could go from my house in Chicago on foot, essentially with the assistance of the L and an airline. But I get to walk everywhere and Terry drives. We own one car in our household and weeks will go by where we just don't get in it. 
because we walk to the grocery store. There's bars and clubs we can walk to. There's the weed shop we can walk to, the coffee place we can go sit at when we want to get out of the house. And it seems to me a simple matter of a kind of social justice that that should be available to more people and including many people who couldn't afford a single family home that now in Seattle starts at about a million dollars. Yeah. And, and it, it right now, because of the limits on housing that we've had in cities, it becomes a privilege um, for people who are fortunate enough to be able to afford to live in an area where you can walk everywhere and take transit. And that also going back to Vienna and some other European cities, we need to start moving towards what we call social housing. It used to be called public housing, mm-hmm. where the government invests in very dense uh, housing in cities. There's a public housing. We used to massively invest in this country in public housing so that not just for low-income people, but mixed income. So that low-income, middle-class people, they, they pay rents commensurate with their income. And so you create mixed-income walkable communities. Public housing was allowed to sort of rot in this country, and so it got a really bad name for being dangerous and falling apart. But we now have models where you can have that kind of public housing or social housing um, where it's mixed income, well-maintained, beautiful communities. We have some examples of that in some of the rebuilt public housing in San Francisco, and they're amazing. And that allows a mix of incomes uh, to live in in cities, which is wonderful. There's an idea that I've seen floating around on urbanist Twitter a little bit that I never really hear anybody talk about. And I wanted to pitch it to you as an elected official, because I think it's genius. Because one of the sort of knee jerk uh, reactions that even people who consider themselves lefties will have to development and allowing for the construction of apartment buildings in a place like Seattle, not just on arterials, but in neighborhoods, uh, and on side streets, is that it displaces people. And there's this proposal where if you rezone an area, a developer can buy a house from someone who's owned it for 20, 30, 40 years, build a six-story building, and one of the things that the person who sold the house gets is an apartment in that building so that they can, if they wish to, stay in that neighborhood. They can stay on the, in this, on the same lot, but in a new, efficient apartment if the kids have moved away uh, and they don't need all that space. And I just think that is such a genius idea that addresses the argument that this kind of development always forces displacement and is a kind of gentrification. How do we have development without gentrification? How do we get around that charge? Because a lot of people who consider themselves lefties and progressives will ferociously defend single-family housing in Seattle and wrap themselves in the mantle of, I am defending communities of color and poorer people by opposing well, development. Yeah. Well, there, there are two things. For people like in single-family areas that, are, that own their homes, I'm not nearly as concerned about that because you own a home, it's probably dramatically appreciated in value. You're, um, even if you do leave a community, you're typically choosing to sell. You don't have to sell. You're choosing to sell, and then you're either going to stay in that community or you're not. It, it, with renters, it's, it's a little more, it's more complicated uh, because when, you know, if you, let's say you have, uh, you know, a single family home with a renter in it or a two unit building with, a, with renters in it, and they want to replace it with 30 units. So it's more housing, which is a good thing, but what's going to happen to those renters? Um, and so sometimes the approach is, Hey, if there are renters living somewhere, you can't, you, 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 it has to only apply to empty buildings. 
Um, but there's also something called the, the right of return to say, okay, we're, it's going to be temporary displacement. We're going to put you up somewhere <laughs> while we're, while we're building this. And then you have a right to return at the same rent. Um, that's happened a few times for some big projects in San Francisco pretty successfully, but there are tenant advocates who I think understandably are skeptical because if the, if the construction takes too long, if it, there are ways that, you know, developers could try to do things where you increase the likelihood that people will just disperse um, and, and not come back. And, and so there's always a skepticism and a suspicion, like, is there actually, is this actually going to happen? Am I going to be able to come back? So we have to get better about having systems in place so that people have confidence. Uh, and, and there is a way to do it, but it's always, it's always tough, especially with renters and low income renters who are the most at risk of homelessness. And there's a, there's a danger in figure, you know, taking forever to figure out a way to do this just delays the construction of more housing and an increase in the kind of supply that would make it possible for people, even if they were, you know, the small house that's been divided into three units that they live in now was slated for demolition and redevelopment for 30 units that they would have a place to go in the neighborhood if some more stuff had already been built and we hadn't endlessly gummed up this process. Yeah, we've, I mean, we've dug a ditch. If we had not in the 1970s and 1980s down zones, that, that's when it typically happened in West Coast cities. Um, we, we went and just banned new apartment buildings and said you can only build single family and then, and then made it take five years to get anything approved. Um, had we not done that, we would not be in this situation now. We would have abundant housing in San Francisco and Seattle and elsewhere because we would have done it the old-fashioned way, which is as you grow, you build more housing. We stopped doing that 40, 50 years ago. We are paying a, a steep price for that right now, and fixing it is hard and painful, and, and that's why we have a lot of these fights. So it's great to hear that there are some pro-housing majorities on city councils now in the Bay Area and loud and active YIMBYs out there who've got your back. But this was a lonely fight for you a decade ago, wasn't it? You got a lot of grief. Yeah, it it, it was fairly lonely. When I was on the Board of Supervisors, I was elected in 2010. The first few years that I was there, it was just like a few of us. And it was, you would have hearings on building new housing and other than like the developers and maybe one or two sympathetic neighbors, it would be overwhelmingly people opposing it. And it was really, really hard. And, and then just things started changing and the Yimbis wait, wait, wait. arose. It wasn't, wasn't just people opposing it. It was also people casting aspersions on you for supporting it. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. That you're a developer shill, um, that you're in the pocket of the real estate industry. And as I always said, I don't like I, my concern is not who's making what profit. I mean, you know, yes, people will make profits. We all, almost all of us live in homes that a developer built and made money off of at one point, and now we have homes. Um, but yeah, they absolutely, it was like this very tired attack of like, you're just doing this because you want to help developers. I'm like, no, I'm doing this because I want people to have a damn place to live. It was very, very hard. Um, they would attack me personally. Uh, they would protest my home, uh, say that I was bought and sold by uh, developers, which was ridiculous. I, you know, I, I just want people to have a place to live. And um, fortunately, that started to shift over time. And it became, I think, a lot more popular uh, to advocate for more housing. And I think people are at the point, most people, majority, uh, where they don't want elected officials to oppose housing. That, that era is 
casting. And, have you heard, have you heard from any to... converts, any people who used to call you a developer shill who didn't care about poor people who now get that you were right and have told you that they were wrong? Or did those people just move away or die? Three or four years ago, there was a, an older couple and it was in Glen Park, which is a neighborhood that I still represent, but I used to represent on the board of supervisors. They came up to me at an event and a community event and they, and they said, Hey, just want to let you know, we always like disliked your housing policies and we were really scared of development in the community. And we just strongly disagreed with you, but you know, like we're really concerned now that our daughter and son-in-law who just had a kid, they're going to have to leave San Francisco because mm-hmm. there's nowhere they can afford. And, and you know what? You were right. And <laughs> we were wrong. And so I've had a few conversations like that with people who, you know, they, once it affects someone in your life, your kid, um, or, or maybe your kid has had three teachers uh, in a year because the teachers have all had to move away. Once people the real world consequences, their minds tend to open up. I had a conversation with a former mayor of Seattle a few years ago where he told me that a woman stood up at a public meeting and screamed at him about blocking any effort to rezone. And then in the next breath screamed at him that her son couldn't afford to buy a house in Seattle. A former colleague of mine uh, in the state Senate who um, turned out is no longer there said to me, uh, she, she opposed every housing bill I did very oppositional, just really, in my view, bad politics on housing. But then she would complain to me that her kids live in Chicago and can't move back to California and she can't see her grandkids. And at one point I said to her, I said, do do you see the connection there? She sort of did, but it didn't change anything, unfortunately. So when do you term out of the state Senate? So I'm in my second term. I can run for re-election one more time in 2024, and I would term out in uh, 2028 if the voters chose to send me back. Are you going to run for re-election? Oh, yeah. And any yeah. plans for after that, or is that too far off into the future to talk about? Um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I love, I love what I'm doing now, and, and I, I, I think I can make an impact, not just on housing. We do a lot of work on mental health, criminal justice reform, queer issues, and um, I, I, I love it. You want to be the first gay governor of California? Uh, I'm not really looking to be governor. I think that's a really thankless job. I think I'm, I don't know. I, I like legislating. That's okay. How about, se- how about giving sex advice? How about that job? Would you like to give that a try? I uh, sure. Happy to. <laughs> Hi, Dan, 32 year old gay guy here living in New York city. My husband and I are in an open marriage. We've been together for seven years. We have a lot of fun together and really enjoy hearing each other's sexy hookup stories with other people. Ever since we opened our relationship, we have set really clear boundaries, one of them being that we always use protection with other people. This has worked out for the most part, but is it just me or is the gay community getting very judgmental about condoms? I sometimes feel shamed for even suggesting it. My husband recently got gonorrhea from receiving a blowjob from someone, and subsequently I got it from him, and this was all just from oral sex alone. So now we're wondering if we should just get on prep and start having bareback sex with people since it feels way better and since we can get the same STDs from oral sex as we can from penetrative sex. I feel like we're the last living gays who still use condoms, so I'm curious if there are any big risks we should consider before leaving condoms behind for good. So Scott, uh, a few years ago you wrote an essay for HuffPo 
uh, about getting on PrEP back when there was still some debate in the gay community about whether PrEP was a good idea or a bad idea. What would your advice for these guys be? Sure. And that was in 2014. That's uh, when I started using uh, PrEP and I've been using it ever since. My advice would be to definitely get on PrEP. I mean, the, in terms of HIV, PrEP is frankly a, a higher protection than condoms. And, and if people want to use condoms, that's uh, totally, I, I support their choice to use condoms. Um, but PrEP is even more protective against HIV. And it is, it, you know, I started having sex in 1987 <laughs> when there was tr- not even like treatment for HIV. And, and the fear mm-hmm. that, that you, you know, between like uh, of having sex and the, and just being scared every time, like, oh my God, I, I had a cuticle that was bleeding a little bit that I get HIV. And, and it was a game changer to go on PrEP and, and just have that confidence. Yeah, that would, I would, that's what I would say to these guys, that they should already be on PrEP, even if they're using condoms yeah. for anal intercourse, exactly. because condoms break, condoms tear, condoms leak. Right. Um, I started having sex in 1980, so before HIV and long before PrEP. And yeah, I remember what that fear was like. And I had friends who made all the same choices I did, used condoms as religiously as I did and had an accident with a condom and died. And so I would, not that you would die now, now there are effective treatments for HIV, we don't scaremonger about it, but it's better to not have to live, you know, it's better to not have HIV than to have it, which is not to stigmatize people with HIV. And people with HIV right. in treatment are uninfectious now, which is also a safeguard for people who are on PrEP or aren't on PrEP, that so many people who have HIV are in treatment and are uninfectious. So it's a safer world out there, but caller, you should, guys should already be on PrEP. Absolutely. And because, and I must, I've, I've been told that we may have a vaccine for gonorrhea at some point in the near future, which is super exciting. How about PrEP and condoms? Like there is right now still uh, treatment resistant gonorrhea to worry about. It's a race with the vaccine and new treatments for gonorrhea, but gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, there are other STIs to worry about. And what we saw, what I predicted would happen when PrEP came along was uh, an explosion of HIV or of other sexually transmitted infections among gay men as gay men, you know, did their risk calculus and made a new choice, which was this protects me from HIV. I'm going to stop using condoms. They're a pain in the butt. They decrease sensation. And yet there seems to be a bit of a cavalier 1977 ish attitude about all the other STIs that we're at risk for. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's a personal choice for people and they're, you know, but if, if people choose not to, you choose not to use a condom, you, you need to get tested regularly for STIs. And, and that's just a choice that, that people make. But, you know, the reality is that even if you're using condoms um, for or, oral sex, I, I, I which no one's ever done. Yeah. There's one or two people out there in the universe who do that, but really no one. And yeah, there's probably two people who used condoms for blowjobs and one person, one lonely lesbian <laughs> used a dental dam one time. And there are warehouses <laughs> stacked to the ceiling with excess dental dams that never got <laughs> shipped or used. That was a kind of a, an interesting thing about the HIV AIDS epidemic. It was this collective decision among gay men that we were going to suck dick and deal with the risk of that and use condoms for anal. And there was a bit of a panic in the public health community that the fact that guys weren't using condoms for oral was going to be a problem, but gay people kind of correctly intuited that oral was a much lower risk for HIV transmission than anal. And that was a good guess that gay men seem to have collectively made in the mid eighties. Yeah. 
the other thing is, even though there has been an increase in, in STIs, I saw some data recently, maybe like a year ago, for right before the pandemic, I think, in San Francisco, that the level of STIs now is still dramatically lower than it was in the 70s. And so, yes, it's gone up. And we do have the antibiotic resistance. And now um, you no longer just have, you know, one or two pills and you're done with chlamydia. You have to take pills for a week and night to get a shot in your in your hip for, mm-hmm. for gonorrhea. And so it's, you know, we're having to stay a step ahead of these things, but it's not as bad as it was in the 70s. And I'm super excited about the prospect of a gonorrhea vaccine. As am I. And I think we both would agree, as vociferously as we agree about housing, that no one should be shaming these guys for wanting to use condoms on PrEP or not on PrEP. I think it's terrible to judge someone for making that decision for themselves. And if you don't want to use a condom, then don't have sex with them. But no one should be badgering or bullying or, or shaming someone for wanting that added level of protection. That's a personal choice, and you got to respect that. Scott Weiner, member of the California State Senate, thank you so much for, for jumping on the phone and chatting with me. I've been a fan of yours, as I think you know, for a very long time, um, and I've wanted to talk with you, and I'm finally, uh, I'm really grateful that we were finally able to do this. And I've been a fan of yours, and I love listening to your podcast. So thank you for all you do. Thank you all so much for listening. And if you want to send suggestions to someone I might talk to on a future sex and politics, send them to voicemail at savagelovecast.com. And please let your friends know about the show and how they can find it by subscribing to the Magnum Savage Lovecast at savage.love. Be sure to follow Scott Wiener on Twitter at Scott underscore Wiener. Thanks again for listening.